Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Call us a fast society, an efficient society, but don't call us a personal society. Our society is set up for isolation. We wear earbuds when we exercise. We communicate via email and text messages. Our mantra, I leave you alone, you leave me alone. Yet God wants his people to be an exception. Let everyone else go the way of computers and keyboards. God's children will be people of hospitality. Long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. The believers met together in the temple every day. They ate together in their homes, happy to share their food with joyful hearts. Every day in the temple and in people's homes, they continued teaching the people and telling the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The primary gathering place of the church was in the home. Now today, we meet in the Archbishop's Corner, and we recall the words of Jesus that where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. For the early Christian community, the house was the primary gathering place, the Eucharist was celebrated, and where the gospel was shared. Today, we meet in the Archbishop's Corner to celebrate God's Word and break open a new understanding of the gospel as we look to Archbishop Leonard Blair to open our hearts and minds to God's Word. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you today? Well, fine. The corner's been getting kind of dusty over the summer, don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely. And my question to you, did you have a peaceful few weeks outside of the Archbishop's Corner? Well, you can imagine that I, I was just uh, all upset that we we didn't have it, but I, I consoled myself by uh, enjoying some vacation this summer. This is good. Well, today is Grandparents' Day, so happy Grandparents' Day. Do you have any special memories that you'd like to share regarding your grandparents? Oh, anything in particular? Well, I, I don't, I'd, I'd have to think a little bit. Yeah. I mean, my uh, on my father's side, my, I had grandparents for, for quite a while. My mother's side, my grandmother lived to be 104, but her husband, oh. my grandfather, died in 1926. He was only in like 40-some years old. So um, those were the grandparents I had. Of course, they very, loom very large when you're a kid. Yeah, it's yeah. been many years now that they've been dead. We wish all grandparents today a happy Grandparents' Day. And Absolutely, yes. And, you know, sometimes today this is a mixed blessing because happily many grandparents are seeing to the religious upbringing or, or faith of the, their grandchildren because the parents are not doing it. And that's the sad part, you know, but uh, grandparents continue. And also, you know, in many other respects too, with a lot of divorce out there and other things, grandparents have more put on them sometimes today than they used to with regard to their grandchildren. This is true. So we salute grandparents on this day. Now, this celebration is under the category of get to know your archbishop. Uh, so if we were playing Jeopardy, that when would probably... When did we put that section in the show? I, I, I think it's a good section to, well, to start. Well, I'll, I'll let you know if I think, if I agree. Because, t well, today is National Chocolate Milkshake Day, and it's observed each year on September 12th by chocolate and ice cream lovers alike. 
It was back in 1885 the term milkshake referred to, get this, an alcoholic beverage blended with eggs, whiskey, and other ingredients served both as a tonic and a treat at pharmacies. Well, by the 1900s, milkshakes were referred to as wholesome drinks made with chocolate, strawberry, or vanilla syrup, and people began asking for this new treat with a scoop of ice cream. And due to the invention of the blender in the 1930s, the milkshake began to take on a frothy form like they are today. So, under the category of get to know your archbishop, what's your favorite milkshake flavor? Now, you know, that's very interesting because when I was a kid, which is a long time ago, uh, we used to have mil- uh, drink milkshakes. I haven't had a milkshake in years, but I do remember I like the chocolate one the best. You know, I'm with you. I haven't had a milkshake in years either. I think my favorite is vanilla shake, though. But isn't that strange? Maybe it's maybe we ought to revert back to our younger days and and on this day at least treat ourselves to a milkshake. I'm for that. Tomorrow is Positive Thinking Day, and it's a time to concentrate on all things positive. Many people struggle with thinking positively, especially these days, while so many are worried about the pandemic and all of the negative stories that we hear on the news. What tips can you offer listeners on how to stay positive in a somewhat negative world, Archbishop? Well, I think if you have a healthy uh, prayer life uh, and you have a healthy sense of uh, the faith and uh, all that we believe about the cross and the resurrection and about the duties of our state in life, and if we live a life that cultivates virtue and that even though we are sinful and we need to go to confession, but when we, we stumble, we get up again, I think a person like that has a, has a very good chance of uh, weathering the storms of, you know, life and, and health and everything else. Interesting. You mentioned the cross because on Tuesday, September 14th, we observe the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross. Can you talk for a moment about the meaning of, of the, this feast and why the cross is the primary symbol for the Christian faith, what it represents for us? Well, it is the great mystery because why would you take an instrument of torture and death and exalt it? But we know that that uh, the cross representing uh, cruelty and suffering in the world by being born by the Son of God who rose from the dead, it is transfigured that uh, these things are no longer dead ends, the crosses that we have, but if they're born with love then they and faith and hope, then they uh, lead to resurrection. So, you know, Jesus says, unless you take up your cross every day and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. That's the great mystery of evil and the mystery uh, by which evil is conquered. It's interesting because on the very next day, on Wednesday, the 15th of September, we celebrate the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. After we celebrate the exaltation of the cross, the Holy Cross, on Tuesday is followed by the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. And this feast is dedicated to the spiritual martyrdom of Mary, Mother of God, her compassion with the sufferings of her divine Son. Talk for a minute about the significance of this feast for us. Well, I think you've given it that Mary at the foot of the cross is one who, in a sense, um, has our eyes and heart to behold what is happening and unites her suffering to that of her Son in a redemptive way. And so... It reminds us that not only Christ's sufferings on the cross are redemptive, but whenever we join Mary in uh, also bearing our sorrows with faith, hope, and love, always those three great virtues, uh, not with bitterness, not with uh, turning in on ourselves, 
uh, not with uh, faithlessness, but with faith, hope, and love, then we are part of this redemptive uh, mystery that, uh, that, that is revealed in Christ. If Jesus went through his suffering, Mary went through her time of suffering, isn't it likely then that all of us will have our challenges in terms of moments of suffering and pain in our own lives then? It's part of the human condition we all do, you know. I, who was the saint that we recently celebrated from Latin America? St. Rose of Lima, I believe. Mm. You know, and in the Divine Office, the second reading, perhaps you'll recall, she talks about this, you know, she was, she was very austere uh, in her penances and, and how she said she would go through the streets shouting, you know, no, no joy or, or redemption without suffering. You know, it's not masochistic, uh, or, you know, or something like that. It, it's simply recognizing that God has given us uh, a way to overcome by love uh, the sufferings that are part of life. Uh, and when we embrace them that way, uh, that it's redemptive and it leads to joy. You know, Jesus said, I will give you a joy that no one can take from you. And he said that on the eve of his crucifixion to the apostles when he was about to enter into agony. Yeah. Let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life. And this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis drawn from some of his own personal writings. So I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts on what Pope Francis has said. And this is taken from his homily delivered on November 1st of 2016, and is called Change the World, Rediscover Humility. He says, The Beatitudes are the image of Christ and consequently of each Christian. I would like to highlight one in particular, blessed are the meek. Jesus says of himself, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. This is his spiritual likeness, and it reveals the abundance of his love. Meekness is a way of life, and living meekly brings us closer to Jesus and to one another. It allows us to set aside everything that divides us and thwarts us, and to find ever new ways of advancing along the path of unity. The saints bring about change through their meekness of heart, with meekness, we understand God's greatness, and we worship him with full, sincere hearts. For meekness is the attitude of those who have nothing to lose. Their only wealth is God. Your thoughts, Archbishop? You know, the scriptures speak to us of many qualities. Jesus himself speaks of many virtues and qualities of a life lived in God, a life in imitation of him. And there are aspects of Christ's life that we can say he was not meek. You know, when he took a whip and threw the money changers out of the temple, mm -hmm. when he contradicted and spoke in anger to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But in it all, there is uh, a meekness in Christ's heart uh, that is a heart filled with prayer and of submission to the will of the Father. It's uh, a meekness in the face of everything that was to befall him as part of God's plan. And I think that's the way it is with with uh, us. You know, it doesn't mean that we became little become little mice who who never speak up or who never uh, you know do anything bold. Far from it. In fact, one of the key words of the New Testament in the Acts of the Apostles is boldness. You know, the apostles preaching on the rooftops on on Pentecost Sunday. I guess we wouldn't call that meek, but the meekness that Jesus talks about here is a docility, a docility to the will of God and to the work of God and to all that befalls us, that we, we accept it uh, humbly and we accept it uh, without uh, 
without protest the crosses that come our way, that we that there a certain meekness and humbleness of heart in regard to other people and in regard to the things that life throws at us. I like what what the Pope said. He said, "For meekness is the attitude of those who have nothing to lose. Their only wealth is God." Yes, that that is that is true. You know, uh, we can afford to be. I guess another word would be serene, because ultimately all that we have and all that we are comes from God and will return to God, and that's what we should be concerned about. Let's take a look now at our gospel reading on this twenty fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time, the twelfth day of September. Today's reading is from Mark's Gospel, the 8th chapter, and after the Gospel is presented in dramatic fashion. We'll talk with you, Archbishop, and ask for your thoughts. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Jesus charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Jesus called to him the multitude with his disciples. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So, Archbishop, this gospel is filled with food for thought. What are some of your thoughts? Well, my thoughts follow exactly upon the discussion we were having before the gospel was read. You know uh, the uh, the Pope's words about meekness, uh, meek and being meek and humble of heart, like Christ Himself, and similarly, so so applied here, similarly to to the cross, Jesus says, "You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. You must be willing to lose your life in order to save it." And of course, the apostles uh, didn't understand that, uh, just as we don't understand it unless we are uh, re- reborn in Christ and through faith. But uh, he was still thinking in very worldly terms and said, Lord, that can't happen to you because Peter had a very worldly idea of the Messiah who would come and kick out the Romans and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. But that's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus uh, came to be. And uh, so, you know, we have to understand too, what are we expecting of God? Does it really does it really correspond to what Jesus said and what he did? Does it correspond to his death and resurrection? And if it doesn't, then we have to understand that we're, we, we need to go more deeply to understand who Christ is and what the gospel is. Peter answers the question of Jesus correctly, but then he blows it when he rebukes Jesus for talking about his suffering and death. And Jesus then says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Well, in fairness to Peter, he is human and only human. How else is he supposed to think? What does Jesus mean by this? Well, he's only human, but grace transforms us. Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, transforms us to put aside a worldly and fallen and sinful way of thinking and put on, as as St. Paul says, the new man, to put on the new person that is alive in Christ. I suppose you could make a comparison that sometimes about the church. 
that you know people can say well the church this is the body of christ it's the beautiful bride of the risen lord and then when all kinds of awful things happen in the church and i'm not talking here about sin in the church i'm talking about you know the world's condemnation or the world uh turning on the church the world condemning or or the church for not for sin but that's another matter but for what it believes and teaches well we can't expect our fate uh, to be any different than that of our master if jesus says if they if they persecuted me they will persecute you Uh, and what they said about me they'll say about you so we always have to put that in context of the cross and resurrection archbishop let's take a quick look at today's second reading it's from the letter of james and in it the question is asked what good is it my brothers and sisters If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister has nothing to wear and has no food for the day, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you do not give them the necessities of the body, what good is it? So also faith of itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Your thoughts about this passage, Archbishop? Well, I can't improve on that final line there. You know, if you... If you say you believe in Christ and you accept the gospel, then you have to do what he said. And uh, that involves all the acts of charity and, and self-giving and, and self-denial. And that that is part of uh, the Christian gospel. And so charity is, is very important. Uh, and there are all kinds of forms of charity. Not all charity is material. There's also spiritual charity, you know. The greatest gift we can wish for someone is that they... Uh, have the fullness of our Catholic faith, and that they that they believe and and uh, and live a Christian life. I guess that you have to be self-emptying. You have to be. You ha- can't just be concerned about yourself. You can't just be selfish with what you have. You can't even just be concerned about your own salvation. You have to. You have to want to bring others to Christ. You want to have to help those in spiritual or material need. Again, I constantly use this phrase that. Pope Francis talks about the world's spiritual, moral, and material destitution, all three. And there's plenty of that going around, all three, spiritual, moral, and material destitution. And we have to be charitable in all three, to try to heal all three respects, or all three uh, areas, I should say. Let's take a look now, Archbishop, at some of the questions submitted by our listeners. For instance, Art says, and he doesn't say where he's from, by the way, He says, Archbishop, I am not of the faith. I am Jewish. I have often wondered if I needed to talk to someone and went into a confessional and told the priest that I wasn't Catholic but needed some direction. Would he listen or ask me to leave? Well, Art, I certainly hope that he would uh, be happy to help you. Uh, I mean, I I think obviously you're not celebrating the sacrament. You're, You're not of the Christian faith. But that doesn't mean that uh, if you are in need of spiritual counsel, that the priest would be able to, to, to help you. He might suggest, if he's hearing confessions, he might suggest that, that uh, you wait till after the confession or that you come to see him at the rectory or something, you know. But if you wanted to, uh, if he had the time to, to speak with you in, in the confessional, uh, you know, I would hope that he would do so. The following question is from an email that we received from Louise. At a recent ordination in another state, a woman I know, a non-practicing Catholic, went forward to receive Holy Communion. Apparently, no one told her she should not, 
and the bishop did not give any verbal instructions, and none were in the program. I think this event should have been given the same care in this regard as a funeral or wedding. Do you agree? No, not necessarily, um, Louise. I, I, I think, yes, when we know that there's going to be a, a significant number of people present who are uh, not Catholic, we, we politely uh, make known uh, you know, our belief about what communion is and about receiving it. But at an ordination, uh, I I would think that uh, you know everybody almost everybody there would be Roman Catholic, and um, and you say of course that she was a non-practicing Catholic, which is very different there too. So I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't ever at mass get up and say now we're going to have communion and if you're if you're Catholic but you're not practicing don't come forward. I I just think that would be kind of uh, a little bit over the top. I mean I think what we do is we, uh, in our preaching and teaching, we emphasize to people that, and we bishops are very concerned about this moving forward now, about our Eucharistic uh, understanding that people have, about the importance of preparing to receive Holy Communion well. And that means, you know, going to confession with some regularity, uh, examining ourselves. So, you know, I mean, you have to understand, and I have to be careful I say this, but we're not protecting Jesus from harm. Uh, Jesus can take care of himself. Uh, what we're saying is that the the Eucharist, because we need to be reverent, we we try to make it clear the the kind of dispositions you should bring to receiving Holy Communion. But it's not something that we would say at at every Mass or 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 at a, at a ceremony where we, just to make sure that that nobody comes forward. I'm sure that I have from time to time given Communion to someone who's not Catholic or who whatever. But I don't, you know, that that's not the the point. Uh, that's not the place to to question people. If they come forward to me and they act like they don't know what they're doing, I will s- smile and gently say, "Are you Catholic?" And if they say no, I say, "Well, I'll give you a blessing." Right. right. But if but if people, you know, um, seem to to know what they're doing, I I so I, I guess I appreciate Louise your concern f- for the reverent and and worthy reception of communion. But I don't think we can uh, we can always uh, be you know we can't always be giving verbal instructions about it. Christina from Hartford says, "What is the significance of praying the prayer to Saint Michael at the end of Mass?" Well, Christina, I think the words say it all. What we ask Saint Michael to do, and I think that what we ask Saint Michael to do for us uh, these days is very important. Um, so I've asked. It's a traditional prayer for the protection of uh, the great um, heavenly uh, patron of the church. I know last year, or was it the year before, Pope Francis asked that during, I think, the month of October uh, that year, that that every Catholic say this prayer at the end of the rosary. Uh, And I have elected to have it uh, prayed in the Archdiocese of Hartford after Sunday Mass, uh, Sunday Masses, because I think we are in a perilous time where we need the protection of St. Michael. I've also told priests that, you know, in this time when people are getting shot in public places, mm. that we need to be uh, vigilant about the safety of our parishioners, that we should talk to our local police about uh, the security of our buildings. And I also told them, consider hanging up an icon of St. Michael in the vestibule, uh, you know, and invoke his, his, his intercession for us. We do need to be defended against so much evil that exists today. Mike from Seymour asks the question. He says, 
When I watch the news and hear about terrible natural disasters, war, and more variants of COVID-19, I can't help but wonder how God can let all of this happen. How could a loving God allow so much suffering? Well, it's again the mystery of sin and redemption. It's the mystery of creation and the fall. It's the mystery of Christ's birth uh, and his uh, cruel, unjust uh, death on the cross and his resurrection. Uh, that the reality is that uh, we are in, living in a, in a sinful and fallen world, and uh, the uh, we actually believe. Uh, that it is through the, uh, the, uh, enduring suffering with faith, hope, and love that we uh, we find redemption. Uh, so yes, all these things do happen. You know, there's nothing evil about uh, an earthquake. It's just the, the earth uh, reacting to its geological uh, reality. Uh, but the the evil, of course, is the fact that when it happens, many people caught in it can can either be terribly injured or die, and that is a, an evil thing. But again, uh, when we, we, we look at these things, we have to understand that we are all mortal. We are all going to die at some point. And we also realize that there is a lot of suffering, even apart from national, natural disasters and war. You mentioned COVID. There's an example. Mm. And, uh, you know, Christ healed the sick and he raised the dead. And he told us that if we take up our cross every day and follow him, that we too will triumph over these things. And uh, so that's what we, what we uh, work for, what we pray for, what we hope for. And I think we have time for one last question, Archbishop. This is from Paul from Litchfield, who says, On Tuesday, Pope Francis, Archbishop Justin Welby of the Anglican Communion, and Patriarch Bartholomew of the Eastern Orthodox Church released an unprecedented joint message calling the climate crisis a devastating injustice. The three Christian leaders said that there would be catastrophic consequences for future generations unless the world took responsibility for environmental damage. The world's largest, second largest, and third largest Christian communions came together to speak about something that will affect all of us. How do you feel about this? Well, I don't think it's so much about just feeling, but thinking, uh, you know, and I I will say this, that... um, this is not something new in the Catholic Church. You know, Pope John Paul spoke about it forcefully. Pope Benedict had a lot to say about this. And now Pope Francis, not to take anything away from Pope Francis, because building on his predecessors, he's certainly been very vocal about this. And, you know, we have to remember that in the scriptures, we're told that we that the, the human person uh, is made uh, to, to be the... Um, uh, the proprietor, if you will, of creation. That that creation is subject to the to the human person, uh, but not meant to be in a sinful way. In other words, when when we when we cultivate the earth, when we when we develop it, when we uh, bring things forth from it, this is the result of the God-given intellect that we have, as well as our own needs. You know, to eat, uh, to have shelter, etc. But when these things, become, uh, because of our, our sinfulness, when they become sub- subject to uh, an irresponsible use or greed or wastefulness, then obviously this is a, a moral evil. And that's what, of course, the, uh, the Pope and, these, and the other leaders that you mentioned are, are, are talking about. Now, it's a scientific question exactly the extent and the nature of this, of this threat. And uh, that's where people can disagree on uh, at a certain level. 
But it certainly is clear that changes are happening that are not good and that there, there is a link uh, there between what we do as human beings and, and the planet. Even apart, you know, there's so much controversy about climate. But what about other things, too, you know, where we, if we uh, cut down all of the forests, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if, we, if we strip the land of, uh, for erosion, uh, you know, if we pollute the water, for example, the very water that we need to live on to drink, those are the kind of things where we have to act responsibly. So we're meant to be stewards. We're not the owners of the earth. You know, God, the world belongs to God. But we're stewards, and we have to be good stewards, responsible stewards, and that's what we're being called to do. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Heavenly Father, in this month of September, we celebrate what our country remembers as 9-11. And we remember with great sadness what hatred and violence can do and the wound it can inflict on nations and societies and on so many individuals. So when we recall what happened on 9-11, as Americans, we commend to you the souls of those who died in this great tragedy. We pray for those whom they left behind, who mourned their loss. And above all, we pray for peace in our world. We pray that war and terrorism and violence and death may give way to a more peaceful and more just world through our efforts and through your grace and blessing. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for sharing time with us in the Archbishop's Corner. We appreciate that time and look forward to being with you again next week. Until then, have a wonderful week. You too. Thank you.